welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. In this episode of Relay Chain, I sat down with Claudia Diaz, a researcher at KU Leuven in Belgium, where she leads the Privacy Technologies team. Claudia started her PhD in anonymity and privacy in electronic services in 2000. That's before the Snowden revelations, before Bitcoin, even before Facebook. We talk about what has gone wrong in the last 20 years, the meaning of privacy and anonymity, and her new work on routing blockchain transactions through a mixnet. Today we have Claudia Diaz from KU Leuven. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yes, and we are in the Mobile Institute of Crypto Anarchy truck at the Lightning Conference, so there might be some background noise from the, the conference here. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, Claudia? Uh, hi, yeah, I'm, I'm Claudia Diaz. I'm a professor at the University of Leuven, uh, working on privacy technologies for the last 20 years, and very recently I've, I've joined a startup called NIM Technologies as a chief scientist. Great. So one of the things that was interesting about you is that you've been talking about digital privacy since like 2001. This is pre-Facebook even. I guess what got you interested in that topic and then what's gone wrong in the last 20 years? All right. So, well, I actually started my piece in 2000 even, so it was even earlier than that. I, I ended up in this field a bit by, by chance, to be honest. Uh, I was looking for a PhD position uh, at a research group where in Leuven and the project they had, they were looking for a PhD student to work on anonymity and privacy and they hired me for, for that position. So I didn't have a pre-existing interest in privacy. I think it was mainly my, my PhD supervisor, Bart Prenell, who actually had a lot of vision in 99, uh, applying for a project on this topic when it was not really in the radar for anybody else. So that was the beginning of, of my training in 2000. And um, I started looking into anonymity and privacy. It was very little at the time uh, out there. And well, I started working on it. My first uh, work was on, okay, what is anonymity? How do we measure it in systems? Can we have some sort of metric and formalization to say whether something is anonymous or not and say why it is anonymous? And what happened was that uh, what was a kind of neutral kind of research topic became incredibly loaded about a year into my PhD because of the 9-11 attacks. So the 9-11 attacks uh, occurred about 10 months into my PhD. And of course, it changed completely the view on anonymity online. So suddenly, all we heard was uh, total information awareness. Uh, these terrible things, uh, like the 9-11 attacks, had happened because the information was there, but they hadn't connected the dots. And therefore, it, it was a very clear solution, which was that the law enforcement institutions that, that do counterterrorism, they needed information to everything, and they needed to share all the information in order to be able to counter future threats, right? So from that moment on, it became really difficult to do research in, in anonymity. Like uh, people would ask you, so what's your research about? And then you would say, well, I'm looking at anonymity. And then, oh, but that's for terrorists. So actually, it, it was a pretty hard um, a hard time to, to be kind of a young researcher working on, on this topic. My first paper was in, in PETS, in the PET workshop, at the time PET workshop, these days PET Symposium, 2002 in San Francisco. And this event was collocated with computers Freedom and Privacy, which is not just a technical conference, it's more of an interdisciplinary with um, policy as well, right? And this was uh, March 2002, about six months after 9-11, and of course, uh, in the US, and of course, everybody was very alarmed about the, what was happening with uh, setting in place 
justification for all kinds of surveillance and having a narrative that uh, framed privacy as something that only criminals and terrorists would want and therefore setting, I think, the, the stage for uh, making it very difficult to design infrastructures and systems that, that actually were protective of privacy because that was not really on the radar. So that's a bit the, the genesis. Uh, and then we, we have come a long, a long way, right? I mean, when I started my PhD, Google was even kind of starting. I, I, I was using AltaVista in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I think I was using AltaVista also in 2001. <laughs> yeah, so, so I think Google was already in my PhD. I was starting to use Google. And Facebook didn't come along until a few years later. And in the beginning, it was only in the US and only in colleges. So it didn't become so big until a few years later. And what I have seen is a massive shift in perception on privacy. So we went from uh, when I started being something kind of neutral or being like, yeah, this is something we should probably be concerned about to suddenly being something bad because it's only an enabler for crime and terrorism to then um, seeing what what kind of damages these surveillance successes can cause uh, to people and societies. And today we have a discourse, even at the policy level, that is a lot more privacy conscious than it was 10 or 15 years ago. How do you see that changing? Because I know like when, um, when Snowden revelations happens, a lot of people were very, they viewed him as a traitor. And so, I mean, I, I was working in the defense industry at this point in America. Um, Maybe I shouldn't say that, um, but like all of my colleagues were like, screw this guy, like he's done all this damage. And so I didn't really see the narrative shift so much then, although a lot of people I work with now cite Snowden as like some of their motivation for getting into privacy and decentralization. But I've definitely seen more of the privacy shift after like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and Google. Why do you think that the like corporation privacy invasion changed the narrative more than Snowden, or do you think that's not true? I think everything adds up, right? I think everything adds up. Like you had, we had a frame of mind in which privacy, why do you need like all these quotes, right? Like uh, Eric Schmidt from uh, Google, if you, if there is something you don't want others, other people to know you're doing, maybe you shouldn't be doing in the first place, like, you know, all these narratives and all these memes and all of that. Uh, and I, I think both Snowden and the uh, Facebook excesses and the recent scandals, all of that has played a role. I think you might underestimate the impact of Snowden if you're in the U.S., in the sense that I think it was extremely concerning for Europeans, because uh, here it was not only an issue of privacy versus the government, it was an issue of sovereignty. It was an issue of national security for us as well. In the sense, like some stories that I know uh, include, for example, the Dutch uh, government having their health uh, records in a cloud provider and then realizing that that meant that the whole health records of the whole population was basically accessible to a foreign government, which is, you know, extremely, uh, it exposes the country to, to outside vulnerabilities. So I think this note and revelations might have played differently in different places in the sense that it's not if you have trust in your government, you might think that it's okay that they do all those things, but when it's a foreign government, you see it differently. And then, I mean, I can imagine that in the defense industry, the reaction was, uh, was specific and, and different people, I think, probably took it differently. It's true that the, I mean, the, the media narrative started changing then. Uh, the Guardian almost became like a global newspaper with this story. But obviously what has come after with all the Facebook scandals has piled on and I think further shifted, you know, further added weight to the need for, for having a better privacy online. 
Yeah, and now that I think about it, after asking the question, uh, I was working in aerospace, and there's like a, we won't go into the side story, but a huge generation gap where like aerospace didn't hire anybody for a long time. So there was a huge group of people that were like over 50 that were like from the Cold War era, and so it's made sense for them, or maybe from their perspective, the Snowden revelations were very different than a younger person in Europe. Yeah, I can't believe that. <laughs> so. We've mentioned privacy and anonymity. One thing that's come up before is that they mean different things to different people. And can you talk about what they mean in different contexts? Yeah, that's that's a hugely complex question, actually, um, because privacy is a very is a very subtle and complex concept that has many many sides and is very contextual. So when people talk about privacy, this is one of the things that makes conversations on the policy level as well difficult, that people mean different things. In my lectures, I, I often talk about three different types, and even that is a simplification, and even that is not really capturing the full complexity and, and range. But I think it's a useful classification to, to at least get a sense of, of how different these perspectives can be. So there is what we can call counter-surveillance privacy, which is mostly what I work in. And this is coming from cryptography and computer security. This is kind of the disciplinary perspective that comes to this, to this field of research. And the frame there is that you need to build systems that are secure, that do not leak data that is unnecessary and that can be exploited by adversaries. So there's always the concept of an adversary that will be able to obtain some information and exploit it for purposes that are damaging for the person providing the information, and therefore we should design systems that do not have this vulnerability of exposing information, right? So it's a very security-centric adversary uh, assets uh, kind of frame, and it's uh, also a perspective that usually sees the service providers or infrastructure providers as potential adversaries, maybe because they are colluding with somebody else or doing things that are not allowed behind the scenes, or maybe because they get hacked by third parties. And then, you know, it's not that they themselves are malicious, but they are hijacked to do malicious things. So usually from the kind of counter surveillance perspective, uh, things like decentralization are emphasized, trying not to not have trusted points of failure, because it kind of is in a frame of mind in which if you concentrate too much power in certain parties, those parties can become corrupted and you basically don't have the resilience that you can have when you have decentralized systems where many things have to fail before you have a privacy breach. Now, this is one perspective, minimizing trust, trying to have very strong security and decentralized trust as well. There are many other perspectives. If you think about data protection, GDPR and the whole data protection perspective and the constitutional uh, court in perspective in Germany, for example, that they also have rulings about these things. It's a very different point of view there. It's more about enabling the digital economy. It's more about enabling data transfers and therefore setting minimum standards of what is acceptable in order for this digital economy to flourish, right? So it's not so much about protecting people from surveillance, it's about setting minimum standards. And there, the service providers, infrastructure providers are often seen as kind of semi-trusted parties in the sense that they are the ones that have to put in place the measures to protect you. They have like a, a duty of care towards their users. And if they do something wrong, then the law is there to punish them. So, so the recourse of individuals towards abusive service providers is the, the law. 
So the perspective from the GDPR and data protection is actually very different. There, the providers are kind of trusted parties, semi-trusted parties. They have the duty and they are expected to, to look after your best interests. So they, they are expected to protect your privacy, to do things according to, to rules that are fair and that are protective towards you. And if they fail, then you can go to the authorities and then they can, they can get punished through the legal system. So this is a different perspective from kind of counter surveillance, which, which tries to build in the protections in the technology itself is, is kind of preemptive, such that these providers do not actually have access to the information that they need to violate privacy, while in the other is post uh, factum in a way that they have the, the information, they could do bad things, they are not supposed to do bad things, they're supposed to good, follow good policies. And if they fail to follow good policies, then you can go to the law and then the, the legal system will protect you. So that's a, already quite a different perspective. And then you have a, a very important um, view on privacy, which is more the kind of social privacy and this is I think what most people are concerned about to be honest like people in Facebook like a, a teenager using social media I don't think they're concerned about the NSA or about you know the Facebook corporation they're concerned about their mother and about their teachers and about their ex-boyfriend you know about people in their their peers in the social environment so many people conceptualize privacy as uh, as this negotiation uh, of what you reveal to whom in your in your social environment in your social relations and that has a lot more to do with like interfaces, settings, having granularity. How do you exercise control? How do you, is that too much cognitive load on people to have, you give them a lot of controls. Maybe that's also not very useful. Uh, how do you, you know, basically have interfaces that are adequate for people's cognitive cognition in order to make good decisions, but then what are good decisions? Then often researchers will be kind of either saying what good decisions are or trying to infer what good decisions are from asking people. So this is a very different perspective. This is usually involving psychology, behavioral, um, behavioral science, and in, from a computer science perspective, human-computer interface, because this is like how you present settings or choices to users. And I'm not being complete. Like this is just like, to summarize, it's, it's just like one perspective. So social privacy towards your peers, uh, another uh, paradigm in which it's about uh, having the digital economy flow and having data flow, but with some standards. And if things go wrong, you have the law. And the other is less built systems that are really secure and don't enable uh, abuse. Yeah, so I think we're probably more interested in like building these systems that don't allow abuse at all. But on the law side, I thought one thing that was interesting in one of your recent talks was a 1983 definition from a German court. I read it down that... Privacy is defined as protection of the individual against unlimited collection, storage, use, and disclosure of his or her personal data, which seems kind of prescient <laughs> looking back there. Well, it's very cute, right? Like you think what, what, what unlimited meant in the 83 and what unlimited means today. And the word has, I think, gone. <laughs> yeah. It has broadened in a way that is, uh, is quite spectacular. Yes, yeah, so this um, this perspective on the, on privacy is very much in line with um, data protection, actually, and with the OECD principles. So this is one strand. Um, I understand where they're coming from, and it kind of makes sense. But it's I find it also limited in a way. This emphasis on individual control. I mean, if we're talking about protection from unlimited collection, we can do that by by default, or we can do that based on the choices of people, right? And some privacy scholars and some people working on privacy, they have this view that, that it's all about control over your personal data, that this is what privacy is about. 
Now, I, have, I think that's a bit limited, to be honest, in the sense that if a person A takes a picture of person B and C with a camera of person D and then person E uploads it to the web, to, to Facebook, who, who's the owner of that data? Who should assert, assert control, you know? If you and I are having a conversation, who should assert control about that information? So it's not as simple as my data, my decision. Think about genetic data. If I publish my genetic data, it's going to have implications for my family, for my relatives, because they will be also they will be revealing information also about them. So, do I really have the right to publish that? So, this um, idea of individual control, my data, I decide. Well, I understand that it's compelling. I, I think it's it's a, it's a bit limited, to be honest. Like my view is that I think we need to build systems in a way that we just don't have this exposure by default. Yeah, especially with the trend towards smart cities and IoT, that if you have this mesh of computers in a city or like a sensor on a self-driving car, if the sensor sees you, does the car own the data or do you and do they have to ask every pedestrian that they pass? And how can you even have meaningful control, right? How can you have decisions? You would have to constantly be making decisions about your data. And how do you make these decisions? Because I've been looking, working on this for 20 years. When I have to say yes or no to cookies, I don't even know what I'm consenting to, right? And I'm supposed to be an expert. I mean, imagine people who are not thinking about this this as a as a job, <laughs> uh, in the sense that I mean, the, the studies that look that that show like the amount of policies you would have to read. These are not fully informing you about the the end consequences. So while I don't want to remove consent because it would be even worse to say, well, why ask people if they are not able to give you a meaningful decision anyway? So I, I don't think that that's not good. But thinking that, that consent and people's decisions and this kind of sense of control is empowering, I disagree. I don't think it's empowering. I think it's just, uh, this is another, I mean, other people are saying this, it's not empowering, it's actually putting the responsibility on the end user in the sense that you have all the decision power, you have all this complexity, all this you know control room that you have to operate and if things go wrong it's your fault because you had the controls right so it's your fault you just could decide you decided so yeah i i think it's quite problematic it can be quite problematic uh, that that approach uh the same talk that you mentioned the 1983 german government thing you also talked about zuboff's book surveillance capitalism and her point that a lot of these systems are opaque by design and this kind of goes into like you don't even realize what you're consenting to how do you think we got to the point where these things being opaque by design and like what were the influences that made it that way? Well, I mean, I think it's quite an organic uh, evolution, right? In the sense that I believe that information is power. When you have information about others, you have some sort of leverage often. So, of course, organizations will be secretive about their internal information. I mean, this is not from the internet time. This is even coming from before. So, especially... Companies such as Facebook or Google, whose assets, whose business model, money-making assets are, are digital assets, like the algorithms that they use and the data that they hold, they're, of course, very secretive about what they are doing, and they will not be transparent unless they are forced to do that, right? As for how do we go to this, I don't tend to think that there is a great master plan of evil minds sitting in a room and deciding the direction of the world. I think this is just basic opportunism. Um, just as, uh, you know, capitalism conquered whatever the forests and the land, the use of digital technologies produce this, these data assets that are just there to grab because they're not protected. And obviously some smart people see the opportunity and then start building on that. And then once you start building on that, you start creating dependencies because now the services that we depend on to a large extent are dependent on, on that data. So now 
cutting those flows is not something we can do from one day to the other. We, we need to upgrade our, our systems in a way that we can move to, you know, modern technologies that are not necessitating all this uh, massive data collection to function. Yeah, one thing that was interesting about just like her book, did you read it? I have I have seen talks, but I have not okay. read it. It's a long book. I have not had the chance yet. Yeah. Um, so one of her themes throughout this book, it was something that was interesting to me was at the beginning of the book, she's very hard on Austrian economics and um, like Frederick Hayek, basically saying like these corporations are using this free market capitalism as a political reason for defending their actions. And at the end, she actually kind of comes around and is quite sympathetic with Hayek and that like his idea of capitalism was that you have like this kind of evenly spread ignorance that nobody really knows anything. You just follow your own incentives, but that this isn't really capitalism at all because you have just a few actors that have so much more information than everybody else that it's not really people like following their incentives. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing I can say maybe is that I think privacy is very political intrinsically in a way, right? In the sense that it's very much about who we, we give power decision power and who we show our, ourselves in, a, in, a, in ways that can be, make us vulnerable to them, right? So, of course, uh, different actors, especially if they have the capability to, to monetize and to do something useful for themselves, then they are going to be fighting for you know, infrastructures and policies that, that are benefiting to them. And protection of individuals is kind of getting in their way. So, of course, they will have arguments to say that this is a bad thing and an undesirable thing. And they will find other reasons, even if it's not like, yeah, we just want to be richer, right? So you said that like the main focus of your work is answering this question. Can we reconcile the advantages of digital technology while still preserving our privacy? And especially to do this by minimizing metadata, having no single points of failure and transparency for the organizations in power. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that one of the problems when you start talking about all the privacy threats that exist uh, when you use digital technologies is that you almost want to just, you know, disconnect yourself from the internet and throw away your phone and say, well, I'll, I'll just, you know, it's hopeless. And if you want to be private, you just shouldn't use uh, modern technologies. Now, that's not the point. I don't think we should just be regressive in the sense of wanting to go back to some ideal past uh, when this was not a problem and life was simpler and all of these things. No, I mean, we want to have modern technologies. We want to, modern technologies give us a lot of benefits. We can talk to people who are far away. We can access information all over the world. I mean, we, we can do wonderful things. So we want to do those wonderful things. We just don't want to pay the cost of uh, just opening ourselves to all kinds of uh, potential abuses just because we want to do those things. Now, what's the way forward? It's not a simple one. Privacy is actually quite hard to engineer, but indeed um, minimizing disclosure is, is a step. And this is a step that undercuts directly the surveillance capitalism kind of basis, which is that they have this free asset, which is the raw material, which is the data from people. If you take that away, then surveillance capitalism doesn't anymore have the fuel to actually keep churning, right? So the, we, we would see like a shift in the economic models in the, of the internet towards something else. So yeah, definitely minimizing data exposure is, from a privacy perspective, is the most effective thing to do. And there is where privacy technologies have a lot of to offer. In a way, we have 
um, researching cryptography in the last uh, two decades has produced quite amazing technologies that are able to produce, like, uh, enable us to compute things and to offer digital functionalities without exposing private data. This is quite amazing, actually. And, and it almost sounds like magic or impossible uh, uh, when you explain it to people. And I mean, I work on anonymous communications. Uh, we are now building systems for um, anonymizing your communications so that nobody can see who you're interacting with, so that nobody can kind of surveil like which services you're accessing or which friends you're talking to. So, I mean, the privacy technologies have a lot to offer, but of course, it's uh, quite a challenge to to have the kind of services and yeah, functionality ecosystem that we have today in a fully privacy-preserving manner. We are a long way from that. With respect to transparency, of course, yes, I think transparency is the other side of the coin. I believe that the ideal would be the reverse of what we have now. What we have now is that corporations are opaque because they keep secret the profiles they make about you, the algorithms they use to make sense of you, to make decisions about you, what they share with others, all of that is very opaque, while individuals are completely transparent to them because all our data is completely visible, right? And I mean, to be honest, it should be the reverse, right? Like individuals should be private and opaque and have their sphere of privacy and what they do. They should only be revealing things that they voluntarily want to reveal for some reason to somebody else. While we would want the, the providers to be transparent because they are in a position of power in the infrastructure and to have accountability and to have checks and balances, it should be possible for the rest of us to know what they are doing and to kind of verify that they are doing the right things. But of course, we're a long way from that. So we're a blockchain company, so we have to talk about blockchain a little bit here. If you're going to make a, a privacy system, what are the advantages and disadvantages of using a blockchain versus some other technology? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm very new to blockchain, so I'm, I'm still learning uh, when it comes to blockchain. In my view, blockchain offers a great uh, tool for availability and integrity, right? So blockchain is a, is a broadcast channel that everybody can view and everybody will have the same consistent view. So this is a very interesting building block that you can use to do things. And then they also have integrity in the sense that it's immutable and th therefore you can trust that whatever information is in there has not been changed, right? So that's great. Uh, of course, the downside of blockchain is that in terms of confidentiality, they make confidentiality very tricky because now information is available to everyone forever. And having um, transactions on the blockchain that are not uh, revealing private information requires quite complex engineering. We see some people doing that like Zcash, for example, or Monero, they try to have transactions that have privacy properties, but that adds su substantial overheads, re reduces functionality. And I mean, it's, it's work in progress, I would say. I don't think we have like solutions that are fully private and scalable and work fast and all of that. Yeah. And so like, even if you're using one of these uh, privacy preserving currencies or networks, they're still operating on the public internet. Yeah. And what kind of limitations does that provide? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question. Yeah. So even Sika or Monero, they provide privacy on the chain layer, right? So so the cryptographic identifiers are modified in ways that there's an linkability between, you know, payee and a receiver of a payment. So that's great. Now, the problem with anonymity and privacy is that it, you just don't address it at one level of the system. If you have side channels 
in other system layers, then you can break the privacy properties offered by the layer that you have protected, right? So for example, in these systems, if the peer-to-peer -peer broadcast layer at the network is not uh, protected, then everybody can see who is broadcasting transactions and therefore guess senders and receivers of transactions by combining the chain information, which is to some extent protected, with the network information that is unprotected. So now this is very interesting because this is precisely what we are working on in, in NIM. Uh, we are building an anonymous communication infrastructure. It's actually a privacy infrastructure that does more than anonymous communications. It does the, the protection of metadata at the network layer, but is coupled with uh, anonymous credentials, which also add functionalities that enable uh, payments, authentication, and authorizations. So that is not just um, it's not just the network. You, you can also have functionalities that even if your user is anonymous, you can still uh, verify whatever is important for you to verify, that they have a valid account, that they pay the right amount, that they have an access ticket. So you can kind of customize uh, the information revelation to what is strictly necessary for the application and, and have by default unlinkability between uh, activities of the same user, both at the transaction level and at the network level. Yeah, I mean, it's like, how did you design the system? To so, yeah, so our system basically, I mean, the network protection layer is a mixed network. So I guess you might be familiar with Tor. Yes. So it's a system in the same kind of class as Tor, but with different features. So Tor is connection-based, meaning that uh, you establish like an end-to-end connection and then you send all the packets on that uh, connection. While mixnets are packet-based, meaning that each packet has individual routing information and goes through different paths. So that makes it much more difficult to trace end-to-end -end flows. Then uh, Tor doesn't apply any latency, so it, it forwards things as fast as possible. So that means that if the adversary can observe input and output, they can correlate based on timing and packet counts. In Mixness, you have a configurable latency that if the applications are latency tolerant, you can increase. Uh, and if they are less latency tolerant, you have to decrease. But the more latency you can add, the more you can reorder packets such that input-output flows are reordered and it becomes very hard, even if you have full... Um, network view, it becomes very hard to correlate input and output. And on top of that, we also use cover traffic, which means fake traffic that Tor doesn't use. That means that even when you're seeing things happening as adversary, you don't actually know if something is happening at all because it could just be just this dummy traffic that is completely meaningless, right? So the level of protection towards global network adversaries is a lot stronger. Now, in terms of interface, I mean, the, the idea is that we want to support other projects and applications. So we will offer an interface that uh, they will have to have some sort of uh, gateway proxy that is able to receive packets from our network. So they would have to kind of be able to unwrap the last layer of, uh, of our network. Um, they would have to, if they want to have authentication or payments or whatever, they would have to be able to understand the credential protocols and interact with our validators to, to execute payments and redeem credentials, verify credentials. And the idea is that this would be some sort of proxy that is running at the service provider side that is able to translate, uh, is, acts like a network proxy effectively, and is able to translate the packets from our network to whatever application uh, messages make sense, right? So yeah, you would have to have a component that is a sort of gateway that does the translation between the application and our system. Okay, so you have your NIM blockchain, but another blockchain or application could use the NIM 
way or to relay messages? Yes. I mean, uh, the blockchain is just a little component that we use for distributing public information for our system and where you can also do some transactions. But yes, the ambition is to support all kinds of applications. To be honest, not only blockchain applications. You don't need to have a blockchain application to, to hook into this infrastructure. It's basically an, an infrastructure that provides you with unlinkability such that an adversary that is looking at the system cannot see which user is accessing which service based on the traffic or based on the credential uh, authorizations. And this is very generic. And certainly projects that have their own blockchain, they will continue to use their own blockchain. And yes, the one we have can be used for some uh, token transactions, like redeeming credentials, issuing credentials, redeeming credentials. But yeah, yeah we are um, interoperable with, uh, we are an infrastructure, so we have to be as interoperable as possible with uh, the other systems. Right. And that's where my brain is going. Um, that's like the main thing we work on is interoperability. And so how you interface with other systems and yeah. what kind of infrastructure you use. So yeah, the, the our mixnet, just a store, is an overlay network. So that means that between every two nodes in our network, we're going through the public internet. And we assume that the adversary might be seeing those connections. Now, the point is, the adversary sees you going to the first mix and then from the first mix to the next mix and then but is not able to correlate inputs and outputs from each of these mixes even if he has full visibility over the internet connections of these entities and this is because there is transformations happening inside the mixes cryptographic transformations that mean that you cannot correlate based on bits and bytes based on content but also timing transformations such as the flow of inputs is not coming out in the same order, it's completely reordered. So even in based on timing, you have uh, the adversary has a lot of uncertainty about which input might correspond to which output. You can even have uncertainty in, this, in the sense of uh, one input may correspond to thousands of even millions of outputs, depending on the parameters that you have. Okay, I have a lot to learn about networks, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, so who are these packets being sent between? Would this be different nodes in the network or would it be the users and the nodes? Yeah, so the, the way we envision this is that, so the user would have some sort of wallet or, or application. This might be provided not, I mean, maybe by us, we would provide some basic uh, client, but it, we expect it, let's assume you have like a um, messaging application that is uh, built on, on our system, right? So the user would uh, subscribe, maybe they have to pay for this service. So they would first of all transfer some tokens into a, convert tokens into a credential. Then they would connect to the mix network. And basically what they do is that they take the information they want to send to the service provider. In this case, it's the messaging app provider. They wrap it into multiple layers of encryption. So this is like onion routing. It's a different protocol, but the principle is the same. It's one layer of encryption on top of the other. Of course, to do that, they need to have public information about the mixnet. They get that from our blockchain. So uh, they will wrap this in multiple layers. They send it to the first mix. The first mix wraps, takes out the first layer of encryption, and that reveals the next destination, the second hop. So sends that to the second hop. The second hop unwraps another layer of encryption, and that reveals the next hop, and so on, until the last, the last hop in the mixnet that will unwrap and see the destination, in this case, the messaging app. So, of course, this messaging app has to be compatible with our system, so they, they have to be able to receive these messages. So the message will be sent to the messaging app that unwraps and can see the, the payload. And in the payload, there may be like a, maybe a credential uh, that can be redeemed for the payment in exchange for making an account, or maybe 
the user already paid in a previous session and they are now, you know, accessing their account to see they have a message or they, are, they want to send a message and so on. How does the author of the message determine which hops it needs to make? Ah, uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's the routing policy. The routing policy is, is, I mean, it's a parameter of the system, effectively. We have a network that is, uh, unlike Tor, Tor is, is kind of a free route network, although it's not. <laughs> but in theory, it is. That's, that means that you can take any three uh, routers in any order. Actually, it's not, because in Tor you have guards and then you have exits. It's a bit more complicated. It has evolved into something more complicated than that. We actually have a layer topology. So basically, our mixes are organized in first layer, second layer, third layer, fourth layer. We are... Uh, for now, we're thinking of three layers, uh, so first, second, third. So you would first select one mix in the first layer, then one in the second layer, then one in the third. So there's a kind of a, a constraints in how you select uh, these uh, nodes, and there are reasons why we chose this topology. It has advantages for anonymity and for analysis and for scalability, so it has very nice properties. And the way uh, you choose within the same layer, imagine you have five mixes or ten mixes that you can choose from, you choose based on the routing policy, which is basically proportional to their capacity. So like in Tor, you have three computers in, in between you and your destination, yeah. and it's all your packets are being routed by the same three. three. And here you can choose a different route for you just pick like, maybe it's not completely random, but a random node from layer one, yeah. a random from two yeah. layer yeah. for each packet. Yeah, it is random. It's only that if they have different capacities, imagine one node is double the size of the other in terms of bandwidth, then you should choose it twice as often because uh, otherwise you have in order to do lot balancing and, yeah. and take advantage of the, the bandwidth that you actually have. Right. And then each packet gets like a nonce so that the receiver can reconstruct all the packets no matter yeah. which. Then, then uh, of course, uh, end to end, you need to build uh, because these packets will have a have a constant size. So, of course, you if you have longer application payloads, you have to partition them in these packets. And then the receiver end, this API gateway a component has to take these chunks and assemble them in, in payloads that make sense to the application. Okay, and then in NIM, the full nodes in the network are talking through this uh, mixed nets, or do they establish a different type of connection? Uh, which node, sorry? Um, so you're going to like validators? Yeah. Um, are they talking to each other through this? No, the validators okay. talk to each other directly. Okay. And when you're a user and you want to uh, get a credential, convert a token to a credential, you actually do it directly. You don't do it through the mixnet. Because we, what we want to have is some linkability between issuing and showing, right? So the first part, which is the issuing, is you. This so is issuing a credential? Issuing a credential, yeah. So the, the, obtaining a credential. So the first, the first part is you. And you can even prove things about yourself if necessary, or you can prove, yes, I paid, uh, you know, 10 coins, so please give me a credential that encodes that information. Uh, so that is uh, done directly. Then you're sending these credentials via the mixnet to a service provider. The credential has been randomized, so the service provider does not see the original. He sees something else, right? And now the service provider, imagine this credential actually encodes a payment. And now the service provider wants to redeem the payment. So they will talk to the validators at the other side, and the validators will not be able to link that credential that is being redeemed to the credential that was issued. So there is some linkability that the validator is not able to match issued credentials to redeemed credentials. Okay, so an end user can get credentials from the NIM network. Yes. And then use them with a NIM service provider. Exactly. And the NIM network doesn't know who the users, exactly. which users are using which. Exactly. Okay. And the that ambition, the ambition, of course, uh, you're hinting already, like the more services you have, the more anonymity you have, because 
imagine a system, if the NIM system would support, let's say, 100 applications, now you see somebody connecting, they could be accessing 100 applications that can be very diverse, so you actually have no clue what they're doing. If we would only su support, let's say, one application, uh, then, you know, when somebody's using this, okay, you don't know what their specific correspondent is. If it's a messaging application, you might not know the recipient, but you know they are messaging somebody. If you have many applications, maybe they're messaging, maybe they're doing a cryptocurrency transaction, maybe they're, you know, doing a file sharing, maybe, you know, they can be doing all kinds of things. One thing that is very cool about anonymity and is different from kind of content confidentiality is the following. To have content confidentiality, I actually can do it on my own. Okay, I can, I can take my files, I can encrypt them, I generate a key, I encrypt the files, I put them in Dropbox or whatever, I keep the key and nobody can decrypt those files. I don't need anybody else, okay? I can do it by myself. If you and I want to have an encrypted conversation, we have to establish some sort of shared secret and then we can have an encrypted conversation and nobody else is able to read that conversation and we don't need the assistance of anybody else. Now, this is not the case for anonymity. Anonymity is about hiding in a crowd. It's not like you are anonymous or you're not anonymous. It's not like that. It's how big is the crowd you're hiding in. So you cannot be anonymous by yourself. In order to be anonymous, you need to have a group of people that are also doing things and you kind of hide in the crowd. And then the point is that you see a crowd of people, you see a bunch of things that this crowd is doing and you're not able to tell who's doing what. Yeah, and this is because if there are only two of us, we can encrypt the data, but someone can still see that we're talking to each other. Yes. Okay. So you need a lot of applications and a lot of users. Exactly. And as long as you have a reasonable amount of applications and users, the protocol layer can't really the see. The more applications and users, the more strength of anonymity you have. And this is why we're framing, we're positioning our project as an infrastructure that wants to serve other applications, like by itself, it, if you don't have applications on top, it will not do so much. The power of it comes with when others start integrating and then all their user bases become blended in one big anonymity set. So we are enabling applications to provide privacy to their own users. And the bigger the coalition of applications that are integrated with our system, with, and the larger their user bases, the more everybody gets. So when a new application joins the system, all the existing applications benefit because now their anonymity sets are even more diverse. Great. And if people want to follow your work or follow NIM, where should they look? People, if people are interested in my academic work, my webpage at the university actually has a lot of, has all my papers and really a lot of information. Uh, with respect to NIM, uh, um, we are also revamping the, the website. So the website has increasingly more content and we are working hard on adding even more uh, content about our system and how it differs from competitors and why it is useful and what it provides and all of that. We also have Telegram channels and I encourage everybody to follow those channels uh, because we send uh, announcements and information there about what we're doing. And we also have a Twitter uh, account, NIM project that people can follow to receive all the updates. Okay, great. We'll link to all of that in the notes. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer -peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. <laughs>